Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Or you can donate on Venmo or Zelle using my email address, spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode number 431 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Skylab 5 and Skylab B. On January 10th, 1974, while the Skylab 4 crew was still on board, Studies were conducted to determine how to configure the orbital workshop for unmanned operations and to leave open the option of a revisit at some future date. A series of special deactivation procedures were required for the Apollo telescope mount, multiple docking adapter, and the orbital workshop to ensure that ground support monitoring and control options remained available from Mission Control at Johnson Space Center. In addition, Marshall Space Flight Center preferred that the orbital workshop be left in a configuration that would allow for future revisit without the need to reactivate the entire station. Upon leaving the orbital workshop in February of 1974, the Skylab 4 crew left a bag in the multiple docking adapter containing food, clothing, and a few other items that could be retrieved by a revisit crew. This would allow the crew to determine the effects of orbital storage. Although it was unlikely that the items would be retrieved, NASA still had the option of returning to the station on a future mission. However, it was understood that this probably would not happen until the space shuttle was operational in the late 1970s. With this possibility in mind, the orbit of Skylab was raised by the engines on the Skylab 4 service module prior to undocking. Early in the planning stages of the Skylab flight, there was a desire to keep it in orbit long enough to use it as the core of a larger station. However, During management meetings, it was realized that it would take a significant portion of NASA's budget to maintain the station in a suitable orbit and prepare it for a later visit. As a result, the idea of using Skylab's orbital workshop as the core of a new and larger station was not a long-lasting one. 
The two remaining options for disposing of the space station after the final crew returned home were to 1. Boost it into a higher orbit for a period of years, allowing the possibility of a short revisit. Or 2. Send it to destruction in the atmosphere over a large expanse of ocean. In addition to the three crews that operated Skylab, a fourth crew trained for at least two types of missions, either a rescue attempt to bring back a stranded crew or an orbital workshop deorbit maneuver. For all three manned Skylab missions, Vance Brand and Don Lynn served as the rescue crew and almost flew a rescue mission to recover the Skylab 3 astronauts in August of 1973. There were also backup crew members, along with Bill Lenore, for the second and third missions. They had undergone all the training for the missions planned by the Bean and Carr crews, and with their rescue training, they were probably better trained than the backup crew for Skylab 2, who were Swigert, Musgrave, and McCandless. A discussion into the possibility of a fourth crew visit to the station was held prior to the first launch in the spring of 1973. This would very much depend on the availability of consumables and status of the station after the third crew had come home and apparently proceeded no further than coffee time discussions. There was no firm duration agreed, no crew activities planned, and no crew training conducted. In reality, the idea never ever progressed beyond a desire to obtain as much from the program as possible. Had such a mission flown, it would probably have been around 21 days to close out the station after the third crew completed their planned 56-day mission. Supplementing the science program and moving some of the deactivation and orbital storage chores to the hypothetical fifth mission, fourth crewed mission, the three-person crew likely to have performed such a mission consisted of Brand, as commander, Lynn as pilot, and Bill Lenore as science pilot. As a scientist, as well as a pilot, Lynn could have equally served as the science pilot, and the advantage of this would have become apparent on such a short mission. After the car crew returned home, there was no other choice but to turn off and abandon Skylab as the gyros, coolant loops, and power supply reserves were indicating that any useful operational life beyond the Skylab 4 mission was not practical. The extension of Skylab 4 from 56 to 84 days added the 28 days that was originally planned for Skylab 5, making that mission unnecessary. Although it was still theoretically possible to dock with the orbital workshop and briefly enter the multiple docking adapter while wearing a pressure suit, there was no clear reason to do so. As a result, a lengthy revisit to Skylab shortly after the departure of the car crew was not pursued further. 
a possible deorbit mission utilizing a fourth Apollo command service module for the re-entry burn after the three main crews had returned home was the most advanced mission planning. In May 1971, the station's reaction control system engines were test-fired at White Sands Test Facility in New Mexico following a simulated 144-day orbital workshop mission. This was done to test the depletion of the onboard propellant supply and as a test of the backup to the command service module deorbit propulsion mode. However, due to the excessive use of propellant early in the Skylab 1 mission, supplies were low. Therefore, the two options remaining were to use the command and service module to either push the orbital workshop upwards to a higher storage orbit or downwards to destruction in the Pacific Ocean. As part of their training, Brand and Lynn practiced these options in the command module simulators. During test, they discovered that if the service module engine was throttled to full and fired for longer than planned, it could cause the combination to jackknife, putting it at an undesirable re-entry configuration. To prevent this, the full throttling of the service module engine was restricted so that a longer burn was required. But if an overburn occurred, it would not cause the spacecraft to spin around and break up prematurely. The second issue was of greater concern to the astronauts. The burn to send Skylab into the atmosphere was close to the point of entry which meant that the undocking and the command module re-entry had to follow the maneuver quickly. If the crew was, to, was unable to undock the command module for any reason, it would remain attached to the station as the orbital workshop re-entered. This was obviously not a desirable situation for the crew, as they had successfully completed their mission and wanted to survive the flight to tell the tale. In this mission scenario, a normal undocking would have resulted in a close re-entry path to Skylab. Additionally, the crew did not want to risk their command module following the flaming wreckage into the atmosphere and sustaining structural damage or ripped parachutes. Brand and Lynn conducted simulations to determine how long they would have to manually unlatch the command module tunnel if they were unable to undock before re-entry began. Lind would need to wear a full pressure suit and depressurize the spacecraft. He would then move to the docking tunnel, undo the hatch, and float inside to manually release the 12 latches in the docking ring. Brand would handle the control of the command module. The simulations and evaluations indicated that Lynn would have just 14 minutes to complete this task, but they proved that it was possible to do so. This information was then passed up to management for a final decision. 
The astronauts also noted that the moment the last latch was released, Bran had to execute a separation burn to move away from Skylab in order to align for a separate re-entry trajectory that would avoid the station's main debris. If the burn took all 14 minutes, Lynn realized that there was a chance that he would still be in the docking tunnel when the command module separated from the service module. The possibility of how to close the hatch and return to his seat to strap in with all the maneuvering of the command module before they begin the re-entry profile still had to be worked out in their training. There was a real possibility that I would be standing looking back up at the fire train with an open hatch, Lynn recalled. He continued, quote, It should have been no problem and would have been spectacular, end quote. The trajectory planners had said they could aim Skylab at any 25-mile-wide spot in the Pacific Ocean, but the dangers of the manned deorbit mission outweighed the advantages of deorbiting the station in 1974. As a result, it was decided to place the station in orbital storage after the third crew departed until natural decay brought it back to the Earth. Ideally, after the space shuttle became operational and could fly to either reboost the station or deorbit it over an unpopulated area. In 1973, Skylab was called America's first space station, implying that other workshops were to follow. Although there was a desire to launch a second workshop, there were no longer the funds to achieve it. Some of the earliest detailed planning for a second Skylab orbital workshop were outlined in a preliminary mission definition document dated September 5, 1969. The design of the orbital workshop would feature the same physical appearance and capabilities as the first orbital workshop and would use the backup hardware assigned to the first station. A total operational lifetime would be between 12 and 24 months with rotational crews of three astronauts of whom at least one should be a scientist astronaut. A launch early in fiscal year 1974 was suggested for the second orbital workshop in the planning program. The second station was planned for an orbit with an inclination of 55 degrees and an altitude of 242 by 310 miles. The second station would use existing hardware or hardware that was under development, and the goal was to keep launch and operational costs down, requiring minimal funding from the fiscal year 1970 or 1971 budgets. Experiments would once again focus on solar, stellar, and Earth resources, but this time would be part of an experimental facility rather than individual experiments. This would allow for lessons learned from the first orbital workshop missions to be applied. One of the proposed experiments would be an attempt to create artificial gravity. By September 30th, 
an ad hoc group formed at the Marshall Space Flight Center to explore the possibility of a second orbital workshop program. The justification for such a mission was investigated and the payloads, constraints, and mission goals were weighed against the launch dates, budget restrictions, and its long-term benefits to the larger manned spaceflight program. It was discovered that the addition of artificial gravity to the combination complicated operations and necessitated the relocation of certain elements on the cluster. A series of studies conducted during the summer of 1969 indicated that the strength of the command and service module and the multiple docking adapter interfaces would need to be enhanced, and that the Apollo telescope mount would need to be strengthened and its position reconsidered. Maintaining attitude, control, and propellant usage were additional issues that needed to be addressed to ensure that the Apollo telescope mount remained pointed at the sun as the station rotated. This indicated that adding artificial gravity to the station would require a significant redesign of the cluster. On August 8, 1969, Marshall Space Flight Center modified its existing contract with McDonnell Douglas to produce two orbital workshops by July 1972. The second workshop would serve as a backup for the first and would be launched in mid to late 1972. If not required, it could be launched as a second vehicle. These plans were being developed concurrently with studies to define the cost, schedules, and performance characteristics of a second telescope mount designated ATMB. By October, a study team at Marshall Space Flight Center was tasked with determining the value of investing in such a program and whether this second Apollo telescope mount could be used to support the development of even larger its instruments. In November of 1969, the objectives for a second station were outlined as a year-long mission with four three-man crews, possibly with artificial gravity experiments. With the solar telescope replaced with an advanced stellar Apollo telescope mount and an expanded Earth Resources Experiment Package. As if on cue, by early January 1970, some of the hardware that could be used for a second Skylab was becoming available. The Apollo 20 mission had been deleted from the program, and soon two more lunar missions would also be canceled. The hardware for the Saturn V SA-513 was to be used for the first orbital workshop, and while the fate of SA-514 was still being decided, the use of SA-515 was being considered as the launch vehicle for the second workshop. On January 29, 1970, a preliminary report was produced to support the congressional hearings to propose the second orbital workshop. This was to be followed by a work statement by July and a preliminary design review in early 1971. By March of 71, definition studies were well underway. They aimed to continue the ability to live and work effectively in orbit 
continued observation of the Earth and its environment for global benefits and use space for scientific research. A decision was made on March 7th that there was no advantage in pursuing a stellar telescope any further or in the foreseeable future, and that all efforts could be focused on artificial gravity and the Earth Resources Experiment Package that the general public could see as the tangible benefits of a second Skylab. The Manned Space Center strongly supported a second orbital workshop for several reasons. Only minor funding would be needed for a 12-month mission with four visits. The advanced solar Apollo telescope mount required no major design changes or an advanced Earth Resources Experiment package could be used in place of the ATM. Additionally, adding artificial gravity experiments would show the public and Congress that this was not simply a repeat of the first set of Skylab missions. The following month, a manned spaceflight management council meeting further discussed what was now being called Skylab 2, also known as Skylab B. Topics of discussion included the module's design, primary objective, experiments, and number of crews that would visit it. The report was due by May, but did not appear until September. In addition to its commitment, Houston also planned for a much larger and more sophisticated station than the plans for Skylab 2-B. However, Huntsville disagreed believing that such a move would jeopardize the first Skylab missions. They went as far as stating that support of a major orbital workshop 12-month manned habitation period would be impossible without serious hardware amendments and that experiments with artificial gravity would double or triple cost. In place of Houston's plan, Marshall Space Flight Center offered an alternative 8-month mission with solar astronomy and Earth resource experiment package objectives. In a scheduled review of the Skylab program dated April 6, 1970, Ken Kleinick noted that the impending decision to cancel further Apollo missions would affect both the 1972 Skylab A launch and the Skylab B planning. This included several staffing, hardware, processing, and budgetary implications that would need to be addressed, such as overlapping Apollo and Skylab operations, moving Apollo forward in launch intervals to fly Skylab after Apollo, or canceling to Apollo flights. Kleinick's briefing proposed that Skylab B would be launched in late 1974, followed by three missions, the first at the end of 1974, and two more in the first and second quarters of 1975. Plans were to scrap Apollo 19 and use its booster to launch Skylab B while holding Apollo 18 in storage for the launch of a third station, a core module that could remain aloft for over 10 years. Throughout the summer of that year, studies continued into the possibility of a second Skylab in preparation for requests for funding in fiscal year 1972 budget. 
However, the payload weight increased, becoming a serious problem that threatened the lift capability and structural strength of the second stage of the Saturn V, which would add even more cost. It was estimated that Skylab 2 would require $1.32 billion to $1.5 billion. After discussion with the Office of Management and Budget on July 31st, mission planners knew that funding would not be easy to come by. However, following a further review on August 31st, it was agreed to move forward with the recommendation. As a result, on September 4, 1970, the delayed and final planning study report indicated that there was sufficient data to proceed with a second set of Skylab missions. A series of flights like this would not only provide additional and complementary data to the first series of flights, but it would also continue the development and expansion of U.S. manned space flight operations, even though no new hardware would be flown. The study also found that the investment would be worthwhile providing an economically feasible program option if future funding for the space shuttle program fell behind anticipated growth rates. In other words, the investments would keep Americans flying in space until the space shuttle was ready to take over later in the decade. Two more Apollo missions were canceled from the lunar program later that month. Freeing up hardware for the space station program and talks were underway with the Soviets about a possibility of a Soyuz Skylab mission. However, by the end of 1970, support of a second Skylab had waned as the complex and expensive modifications needed to include artificial gravity were deemed too costly. In addition, NASA had other, more pressing requirements, and a second Skylab would either require a larger overall budget or divert funds from the shuttle program, resulting in an even longer delay in making that program operational. Despite strong support in the House Space Committee to authorize a second Skylab, President Nixon was unwilling to underwrite the cost, and NASA, not wishing to jeopardize other programs, examined other options using the already built hardware from Apollo and Skylab. On March 17, 1971, it was proposed that the uncommitted hardware from the Apollo and Skylab programs indicated an opportunity to fly low-Earth orbit manned missions prior to the commencement of the space shuttle operations, in addition to a joint mission with the Soviets. Two additional Earth resource surveys were possible using the Apollo Command and Service Module Saturn 1B and an option for a fourth solo Command Service Module mission remained a possibility. However, these proposed missions still required additional funds to mount them. A meeting at McDonnell Douglas on April 19, 1971, the day the Soviets launched Salyut, discussed plans for the backup Skylab hardware. 
representatives from NASA headquarters, Marshall Space Flight Center and Kennedy Space Center, Martin Marietta and McDonnell Douglas attended. Preliminary plans were made to prepare for a Skylab B launch 10 months after the launch of the first orbital workshop and then the three planned missions. A contractor's manufacturing and Kennedy Space Center payload testing profile would follow the format of the first orbital workshop. Development of the first orbital workshop continued, and although the option for a second remained open, it was effectively unfunded. Over the next two years, the idea of a second Skylab became more appealing, but less progress was made because its role in supporting the first orbital workshop in the event of a launch failure. It was estimated by May of 1972 that in order to meet the turnaround time of a 10-month processing schedule for the launch of the second set of hardware, the acceptance checkouts of the backup orbital workshop and multiple docking adapter would be required in May of 1973. In support of this, the option remained open. In December 1972, there were concerns that all activities with the second orbital workshop would be terminated after the first manned mission of Skylab A. However, the backup rescue system was available. All the flight hardware was ready and the cost of the storage would be minimal. This allowed the hardware and support operation to be retained until at least the spring of 1974. It was argued that a major failure prior to, during, or shortly after the first manned flight could have resulted in the program ending with only 28 days of medical data, no science data, no earth resource data, and a $2.6 billion failure. This was because the backup system was already being wound down and major Apollo telescope mount and Earth Resources experiment packages were planned for the second and third missions. Ironically, the launch problems that occurred during Skylab 1 almost made this a reality. On March 19, 1973, there was still discussion of flying Skylab B between the Apollo-Soyuz test mission in 1975 and the start of space shuttle operations in 1979. The value of a second Skylab was recognized, but there was hesitation to fully endorse it, as this would create a far greater risk of further delaying the already limited funds for the space shuttle and other programs already in the budget. On August 13, 1973, with the second crew halfway through their mission, NASA announced its decision to cancel the second Skylab, effective August 15th. All Skylab launch processing work would be canceled immediately, except for that directly associated with the Skylab 3 and 4 missions and rescue capability. Even after this decision, NASA was not ready to let go of Skylab B. On January 3, 1974, there was still the possibility that a second Skylab orbital workshop would be kept until all planning was completed for the fiscal year 1976 budget. 
The launch umbilical tower, number two, was kept in case a future Skylab was needed until a decision was made to launch Skylab or convert to the space shuttle. The existing hardware required for Skylab B mission was kept in storage at minimal cost through June 1974. Skylab B went unfunded in the budget discussions of fiscal year 1972 but struggled on until Skylab 1 was successfully placed in orbit and manned by the first two crews. The difficulties connected with the first launch did not improve the argument for a second mission of the same design. Even though Skylab was rescued from the edge of failure by the astronauts and controllers in a further demonstration of the usefulness of man in space, a decision was made to cancel all plans for a second Skylab in 1976 and 1977 due to a desire to avoid jeopardizing or delaying shuttle funding with a repeat of Skylab A. The opportunity to launch a second Skylab was ultimately lost. The second orbital workshop was removed from storage in 1976 and cut up for display in the National Air and Space Museum, representing the first laboratory configuration. Skylab B remained on the ground, like the three remaining Saturn V vehicles, located in the Visitor Center at Kennedy Space Center, Marshall Space Flight Center, and Johnson Space Center. A clear reminder that the Apollo Skylab hardware would never fly again. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to thank, say thanks for listening to episode number 431 of the Space Rocket History podcast entitled Skylab 5 and Skylab B. Our next episode should be released on or about Saturday, February 3rd. If you would like to be notified by email when new episodes are posted, you can subscribe to the blog by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and typing in your email in the text box on the right side of the page. The 2024 donors page is up and ready for your inspection. Please verify that we have your name on the page at the right level with the correct number of longevity emojis. If we don't, email us at spacerockethistory at gmail.com, and we will fix it. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 249 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. You have to put in the word archive, or you probably won't find it. Be sure to follow me on Twitter, my handle is at Space Rocket Hist, and you can follow me on Facebook by searching for Space Rocket History. You can also keep up with me on Patreon at patreon.com slash space rocket history. At some afterthoughts, as usual, I do apologize for my mispronunciations, and I want to give some credit where credit is due. 
I have leaned very heavily on David Shaler's book for this episode called Skylab America's Space Station. In fact, this whole series, I have used his book quite extensively. It's a very good book. Well, as you may have noticed, the cancellation of Skylab B was a big disappointment, at least to me. So the only manned program left for the U.S. until the shuttle was the Apollo-Soyuz test mission. I can remember this being very disappointing to me at the time. It allowed the Soviets to take the lead in human-led space exploration during that time. And the, the odd thing is there was still equipment available that we had. But the par- politicians and ultimately the presidents of that era were not willing to spend the money on space. I personally remember hearing the old argument, we have plenty of problems on Earth to solve before we spend any money on space. Now, my argument is the technological advances by continued manned exploration might have helped solve some of those problems on Earth. Or they might not have. We don't know. We have no way of knowing that for sure. But I still think it was the wrong thing to do. Cutting up Skylab B was heartbreaking and wasteful. It is nice, though, to visit those old Saturn V's at Kennedy, Houston, and Marshall. And I visited all three of those. And, and it's quite, a, uh, quite an experience, especially at Houston. Houston's got a building dedicated to it which I guess the other two do too. But you go into that building at Houston and it's just that big Saturn V laying on its side there and it's just so impressive. And the other ones are, the other uh, Marshall and Kennedy look great too. And uh, if you ever get a chance, go go visit that because it's amazing to see how big that thing was. And uh, I, of course, would have preferred that NASA used those Saturn V's to put up more Skylabs. But that didn't happen. NASA still came up with some more ideas for using the existing Skylab and the shuttle, and I will cover them next time, and then we will have the big crashdown of Skylab. Beware Australia because here it comes. (laughs) Yeah, it was kind of landed on Australia. Sorry about that. (laughs) I want to give a big shout out to Mrs. SRH. She made some uh, Skylab butter cookies that were very good. And I got to eat one, and the kids got the rest. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Uh, there, there was a lot of sugar in those cookies, let me tell you. In personal news, both Mrs. SRH and I finally are pretty healthy, but the children and grandchildren have been sick, and it wasn't the cookies that got them sick. It's just this crud that's going around. So we are ready for this to end. This has been going on since Thanksgiving. We're ready for this to end. 
My mother-in-law is about the same as last time, no setbacks. In fact, she did see her cardiologist, and he said the new valve is working very well. She does continue to require 24-7 accompaniment. She hasn't, she's a little afraid to stay by herself now. And uh, we're trying to reach that point where she can uh, spend the night by herself because she has the uh, life alert button that she wears as well. So, And uh, my wife's sister's very close to her house anyway. So we're hoping to reach the point where she can uh, stay on her own. And I know she, she prefers to stay on her own. But she just kind of hasn't reached that point yet. Okay, moving on to final financial support. Over the last fortnight, we received five donations and pledges for 2024. I would like to thank Stephen S. from Germany, who donated at the Orion level and earned a big 10 emoji. Robert M. from San Antonio, Texas, donated at the Apollo level and earned a big 10 emoji. Gary A. donated at the Apollo level and earned a galaxy emoji. Craig H. from Australia donated at the Vostok level and earned a space communications dish emoji. Devin M. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Voyager level and earned a satellite emoji. The Patreon donors are currently at 225. That is the same as last week. So sadly, we did not get any back from... uh, inspired credit cards and it's like this every every month we go through the uh, credit card expiration deal where we'll lose donors because simply because their credit card expires and we'll have to try to contact them and get them to re-up for another year so uh if your credit card is expiring we'd appreciate if you would check that Our total unique donors, which includes Patreon, PayPal, Venmo, Zelle, and Checks for 2024, have reached 231, with a goal of reaching 400 by the end of 2024. Uh, So if you are enjoying this podcast that's been running for almost 11 years, and we will celebrate that 11th year anniversary soon probably the uh, middle of february is when we'll do it because i think my first release was february 13th of 2013 so we'll celebrate that 11 years so you'll you'll need some tang if you would like to participate in the ceremony so make sure you get your tang ready for that a big 11 years of uh, podcast without commercial interruptions if you'd like to support us and uh, you can afford it, please consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link, or you can donate by check, donate on Venmo or Zelle by using my email address, spacerockethistory at gmail.com. And by the way, if you began the emoji maneuver last year, now is an excellent time to complete it. We have selected the 11th year uh, support longevity emoji and it is up now and uh, the emoji is two red exclamation points that look like the number 11 and I would like to give a shout out to all those who got promoted to the 11 years of financial support emoji got that longevity emoji they are Alfred B Ronald B Christoph M Guido T 
Dane Unicorn, and Futurama King. Thank you so much for sticking with us for 11 years. We sincerely appreciate it. Like I said before, the 2024 donors page is up and ready for inspection, so please check that out and make sure we've done everything right. Now, without further ado, it is my time to hand it over to Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. I was surprised the Skylab cookies turned out as well as they did. They were more like sugar cookies, though, than butter cookies. It was a lot of fun, and I think everyone enjoyed them. All right, now for the winner. Remember, you will get the choice of the SRH archive magnet or two stickers or a NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Kevin Phillipson. Kevin Phillipson, if you will email us, spacerockethistory at gmail.com, tell us your address and your SRH prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Sincere thanks to all of you who have contributed so far in 2024. My sources for this episode were Skylab, America's Space Station by David Shaler, the Internet Archive, Flickr, and Wikipedia. And that's all I have for this episode. I will try to get episode 432 posted on or about February 3rd. So long for now.